everyone. Welcome to The Agronomists. I am your host, Lindsay Smith, and this is going to be a good one, let me tell you. Uh, do hope you enjoyed our intro music. Uh, that's episode two of this music. I'm still a fan. All right. So uh, tonight's episode, we got a couple housekeeping items before I introduce tonight's guests. Uh, one thing I want to remind everybody that, of course, by joining us tonight, you do qualify for CEU credits if that's something that you collect. But there is a limited time uh, in which you can collect your CEU credit. So make sure you head on over to uh, realagriculture.com slash agronomists tomorrow morning uh, so you can uh, plug in your info and let us know that you did watch. Um, also, if you scroll down a little bit, there is an uh, e-newsletter you can sign up for. It will send you a reminder about the show and uh, keep you in the loop and remind you to get those CEU credits. So if you're into that, uh, please do. So quick reminder, just remember the, uh, there is a limited time. So please make sure that you head on over and do that. Um, the other thing, of course, we do have show sponsors. So The Agronomist is brought to you by Adama Canada. While other sources of innovation run dry, Adama is here to deliver, leveraging the world's largest library of actives to provide innovative crop protection solutions to your greatest challenges. We're all in on you. Talk to your Adama sales rep today. And of course, Real Ag Radio, uh, Monday to Friday on Sirius XM channel 147 at 4.30 Eastern. And Mind Your Farm Business goes uh, usually twice a month. It's a podcast. You can get that at realagriculture.com or wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Without further ado, I bring not just our topic, but our guest tonight. I'm, I don't know which one I'm more excited about, but we are going to talk about tank additions. We're going to talk about surfactants and all sorts of lovely things that we can do to help make that spray pass just the best it can be. And so joining me from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan is Mr. Tom Wolf with Agrometrics and Sprayers 101 and Mr. Greg Dahl, who's joining us from Fargo, North Dakota. Uh, tonight, and he's Senior Research Manager with Winfield United. Welcome here, Tom. Welcome here, Greg. Thanks for That's having nice. us. Thanks for the opportunity. All right. Okay. So, of course, a uh, big shout out to everybody who is here in the comments as well in the comment section. Uh, make sure you get your questions in early and often. Um, we've got a whole bunch of really great things to talk about tonight. I've got a lineup of questions as well, but always um, we love to hear from our guests as well. All right. Okay. So let's dive in. I do have a couple clips tonight. I only chose two um, as I don't usually get to them. Um, and so, but they are pretty important, but let's sort of frame this. Tom, maybe I'll start with you. We're talking about, you know, getting the most out of that spray pass. We do have a clip of you a little later in the show talking about why, but especially this year, why do you think we're going to have to pay some extra attention to that spray pass? There's a couple of reasons. I mean, one of them is the fact that we are expecting shortages of pesticides. So every little bit that we have is going to have to work well. And secondly, we've just come out of a drought and our water aquifers, their low surface waters are low and their water quality has probably changed because of that. So we'll have to maximize that awareness also and maybe condition the water. Okay. Now, and Greg, um, I mean, obviously not in the West, but what were growing conditions like in your neck of the woods? You're not all that far. Was it also dry where you do a lot of your research? Oh, yes. It, it, it was dry all the way to Texas. So uh, basically you take the Rocky Mountains all the way down and, and kind of the middle of the country. We, we experienced the drought as well. And then uh, there were some areas where they had, had moisture and whatnot, but uh, 
basically we we had uh, tough conditions uh just like you guys do in the west so now i am i'm sitting here in ottawa tonight we got 40 centimeters of snow today um but we didn't have a lot until now and so i know snow doesn't quite equate to rainfall um but moisture is moisture and and now there has been some moisture across the prairies um tom what's it looking like out in saskatoon We've had snow as well. I think about a foot is on the on the ground at the moment. But you know, I remember back in the day when we used to pay attention to the uh, forecast that the wheat board used to give. And one of the things that they always said was they don't count snow cover because snow cover usually melts when the ground is frozen and runs off. So, uh, you know, we shouldn't overweight, but I mean, every little bit helps, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay. So one of the things I want to tackle tonight, uh, for sure, is I do want to talk, we are going to talk about some specific products. Uh, but one of, I think the big topics that we are going to tackle is that water quality and, and that water composition. So hard water, soft water, and, and those sorts of things. But what I, what I definitely want to talk about is some of the differences between what we see south of the border and what we see here in Canada. So Jay, if you can queue up, and this is how Lara, who is already um, encouraging me that two clips is a good goal. We're going to go to one clip pretty early on because this kind of sets up a big part of the discussion. So Jay, if we can go to this first clip, we're going to look back now. This is from 2017. So so let's listen and, and uh, let's see when we come back after this clip, um, what maybe has changed or not changed in the time since this. We're here at Farm Forum event, and I'm with Rich Zollinger, and you were talking a lot about surfactant. So maybe let's just start with the basics. What is a surfactant? Surfactant, or let's go the more broad name of adjuvant, would be anything you would add to a herbicide or a pesticide mixture to improve effectiveness. And how does it do that? Three ways. When that droplet comes out of the nozzle, you have to retain, there's number one, the droplet on the leaf surface. Number two is you have to deposit the active ingredient in the plant or on the, on the uh, cuticle. And number three, if you've done everything right, you get absorption of that active ingredient into the plant. Retention, deposition, and absorption. So it can be one or all of those things that the adjuvant Works yes, yes, one or all of them. Okay, are, are all adjuvants um, equal in how they react with herbicides and help herbicides into the plant? That is a motto that we use in the states that not all adjuvants are created equal. And to know which ones are better or which ones are not as good is hard because unless somebody that has done unbiased testing actually does the research it's hard to know. Now, the farmer can actually become the scientist. They can take a product and use it on one field and take another product and use it on or one load and then another product on another load. And then they can observe 28 days later which one works better. And so if there's no research data to be found, then the farmer actually becomes, in a way, the scientist. And surfactants are regulated here now, like what we use with what herbicides? Well, re regulated would be a, an okay term, but I understand it that for a company to actually legitimately sell a product in Canada, they have to go through a registration process with your PMRA. They have to prove that it's safe to the crop. 
they have to prove that it's effective and that it has no adverse reaction to people. Is this different than what you see in the States? Yeah, in the States there is no... It's a free-for-all. Free-for-all. <laughs> you and I, we could produce our own adjuvant, make a million bucks and retire. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> so get your ivory and palm olive, I don't know what you use for your dishes. <laughs> That's all you have to do. Mix something up. Mix something up, yeah. So what are the, the, the benefits of our, our way of doing it are obvious. What are some of the sort of consequences of that route? So the camel companies, they have simplified things in Canada. When you, on some herbicides, when you buy the herbicide, you automatically get the jug of the adjuvant at the same time. That's good because it reduces all the confusion, but it stifles creativity. Somebody might have an idea that could, that could develop an adjuvant to make it even work more than the one that's sold with the product. But if you can't market a good product, then it dies and then it dies. <laughs> Water hardness can affect whether or not a herbicide is taken up by a plant. How do we determine if our water is hard, I guess? Well, the first thing I would suggest is have your water tested so that you know exactly which minerals are in the water and at what concentrations. I think there's information from chemical companies or distributors or dealers that can help you identify if this is, you know, if this, it, it's called soft water, hard water, very hard water, or extremely hard water. They can kind of help you with the different brackets or categories but it doesn't take a lot of minerals and water to deactivate herbicides. So if you just assume that your water source may be a problem and then you take uh, corrective action against it, that, that would be actually a very good plan of attack to make your herbicides work better. I do love that we've already got a comment that very hard water is ice, um, which, you know, maybe. Okay, so so one, Tom, you had one observation. What has changed since that video came out all those years ago with Deb? You know, it's four years ago. Uh, I think Rich is correct in, all, in everything he says, to be quite honest with you. I, I don't think anything's really changed. Canada has a regulated... A market for adjuvants and the registrant has to provide proof of efficacy. Now we've divided adjuvants into two broad categories, the activators so-called, which improve efficacy of a, of a product so that maybe you can reduce the rate of that product and utility modifiers, which sort of change the behavior of the product in the tank. And those are the ones that are now acidifiers, you know, maybe uh, to, to provide some solubility of some products that, that only dissolve better in acids or drift reducing agents like uh, Interlock that Winfield United, for example, manufactures. Uh, those are the kinds of things that you don't, the data isn't that expensive to generate. It's just basically, does it lower the pH? Does, you know, is, is that true? Does it right. change droplet size? So you can do that. But having a, a regulatory or having a research program that goes into all the eco zones and provides five set years of data like we do for herbicides or other other pesticides that's, that basically says that these small companies and many of them are quite small will never come to canada it's too expensive mm -hmm. so greg do do you rich uses the term that it stifles creativity do you agree with that so i i i do uh 
because we have many things that, that we have in the United States that we haven't been able to bring to Canada. And uh, first, I'd like to do a shout out to all the great uh, uh, Winfield United Canada people up there that are helping us spread the story. Um, I'm just so proud of them and, and they're doing a great job uh, bringing some of our technology uh, to you guys. And uh, uh, if you have to register something, it, it costs a lot of money. And so when we were just simply dealing with Eastern Canada, we didn't have enough market to bring things to Canada. Thank goodness now we, we have a presence in Western Canada. And now we're actually bringing some products to Canada. And um, you have the process up there with the copacs and stuff like that. We're actually thinking that uh, it really there's a lot of flexibility you don't have when you have uh, copacs. Uh, and then guys don't use both sides of the copac as much. So you've got inefficiencies from that. Um, the people in Winfield uh, United Canada are unpacking things so that you can come and buy this adjuvant system, use it with uh, a series of, of herbicides um, and uh, have better efficiencies. You can, uh, you can uh, mix and match better uh, and we're excited to bring that up there. Uh, but uh, yeah, there's, a, there's quite a barrier to entry if you're bringing an activator adjuvant and, and one of the things we have a lot, because we have freedom in the United States to do this, we have combination products. So you'll have an activator adjuvant mixed with a utility modifier. And uh, in Canada, we've got to go register that product. In the United States, we can just run and gun with it, and, and we do. Now, having said that, we do an awful lot of research here in the United States because farmers are our owners. And uh, we're trying every day to make farmers' lives better. And every once in a while, we actually are able to do that. So um, I'll just leave it That's at that. A win. That's a win. Okay. So, but but I'm also hearing, you know, at, as you said, Tom and, and Greg as well, that, you know, there's, there's sort of two types. Um, we do in Canada have many of these things sort of built in or, or they come with the product or whatever. But, uh, you know... It, it does, we are getting into this space where, you know, it's like, well, maybe that isn't quite enough. Maybe there is more that we can do, but that then of course is another layer of education, right? So how, Tom, how do we sort of help growers and agronomists to, to help their growers navigate this space? Yeah, it's, it's not easy without the research data. I don't think that we should, you know, I, uh, it's, I never recommend a product to someone whose performance I'm unsure of, because why would I transfer that risk on to my customer? But let's also remember, though, that that open door, that missing, that gap in, 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 in efficacy that might be left on the table without competition. I think the chemical companies are actually quite acutely aware of that gap, and they don't actually want to leave that door open either. So they, they don't want to have a, a product that works so so and then all of a sudden an adjuvant will will be allow someone to have the rate let's say that that's a very obvious thing to try to avoid um so even with a with a regulatory hurdle uh they would don't want to leave themselves susceptible to that eventuality mm -hmm. now 
we, I, I want to talk about water. I think and we should probably spend a bit of time on water and hard water, of course. Um, and as I mean, as you mentioned, Tom, and and I mean, do should farmers be testing every year between different water sources if they have more than one? If we did actually here at Real Agriculture, we did a poll uh, this past spring, especially um, because it was dry and because there were some some restrictions on water use. And we we did a poll to see where people got their water from. And a lot of spray water is actually on on municipal systems. So are is it dangerous to assume your water is is not hard? Is it's going to be fine? It's not going to cause an issue? Um, I would say I'll let, let Greg go right away, but I would say, you know, for a municipal source, you're probably relatively certain it's not going to have a lot of things in it because, of course, that's they, they try to take care of that and do their own testing. I think you'd be crazy not to test your water, though. Uh, you, it's a, it's not a very expensive test. You find out things. It's just like sort of calibrating your nozzles. You think everything looks good, and then you calibrate them and, and check their flow, and you find something that is a little odd. You may find something odd in your water too, and you should you just know. Uh, it's easy to correct in most cases, Greg. Yep. Mm-hmm. So 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 I would agree. Um, and we've done, oh, I don't know how many thousands, lots of thousands of samples in the United States of water quality. And then, uh, I, like in 2018, we started testing up in Canada. Um, and uh, in Ontario, uh, Peter Sikama is sitting on some great water. And, and so he doesn't really need to do a lot. His water is really good quality. But uh, as we tested in these... Uh, uh, Western Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, um, we found some really bad water up there. I mean, it, 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 uh, yeah, it, there's some bad water up there. Now, having said that, your, your ideas are good. Usually the water in a, a, a city uh, or a town is pretty good. Um, usually if there's a rural water system, that water is pretty good. Um, and then the wells are all over the place. So you've got very good wells. You've got wells that are just awful. And, and there I would definitely test, I would test your water source no matter what, because then you know where you are. But having said that, the, the, the bad uh, water sources are typically wells. Some people are taking surface water. Surface mm-hmm. water is a mixed bag. Some of that is actually quite good. And some of that is, is, uh, pretty nasty too um and and uh, i'll just leave it at that it go test it doesn't cost much uh once you've tested uh usually the water is is fairly consistent so you don't have to test um you know like every year or anything like that but uh um and then i would uh, qualify that on the surface water i maybe would because you've got things mm-hmm. going on with weather and stuff like that. But, but in the other things, the wells and the city water systems, no, you, you don't mm-hmm. have to test very often there. We did. So we did though, in that poll, we did ask and municipal water was quite common, but so, so was using a well, a private well. Um, and yes, some people will, you know, some farmers are using either, you know, a slough or they're using, you know, some sort of natural body of water that they're drawing water from. So, I mean, it really was sort of all over the, all over the map. Um, mm-hmm. So absolutely. I mean, it's hard to know, especially in wells. Um, it's really hard to know what you have unless you test. And so, and so Peter Johnson reminds us, don't guess, test. 
Yeah, that's right. You and you know, I, there's I, I a... like I like that. And and uh, yeah. to get to give you an idea, um, so in some of these wells in Saskatchewan and in in Alberta, it really wasn't that hard to find a well that was two thousand parts per million in water hardness, calcium, magnesium, things like that. Um, and that's like, oh, that that's nasty water. Please go find another water source if you can. And then another thing that was kind of surprising up in Canada was how many of the water sources were actually not hard, but they were just full of sodium. They were just salty. Yep. And and actually sodium can antagonize a lot of these herbicides as well. So uh, okay. yeah, go test. So uh, the, that's a really important point, Greg, because the, the, the hardness is measured using just calcium and magnesium and there's a, a, a formula applied that makes it into a calcium carbonate equivalent and that is total hardness that's what all the water tests do but as greg said sodium iron potassium possibly contribute to to hardness as well and is it potassium or phosphorus i actually may have gotten that one wrong uh but uh the sodium component is not counted when total hardness is calculated. And for example, in the Mooster area, Chaplin West, you know, there, we know it's very high sodium waters there. I was going to say, you know, uh, Les Henry, a retired soil scientist, uh, wrote one of the best fact sheets on water quality and sprayers, mm -hmm. you know, probably 25 years ago. And the best thing about that one is he knows the province of Saskatchewan so well, and he identifies all the problematic aquifers because he knows exactly where they are and what, what how they typically test. And you're right. It's the, it's the, the subsurface waters, the wells that they usually, uh, uh, you know, they've had time to absorb minerals. Surface waters typically have other problems. I mean, they have uh, maybe turbidity problems, that kind of a thing. Right. But Which I really recommend. Yeah. 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 Um, don't tell Les he's retired. Okay. So um, <laughs> I guess I'm, I'm quite. Okay. Now we do have a question. So Kent Erickson is asking, now I'm going to assume RO is reverse osmosis. Uh, I missed a little off the chart, but interested to know if there's any downsides to using RO water for spraying any antagonism. And so this antagonism part is one of the ones that we, we need to sort of identify where these things happen. So are there any downsides to using? Oh, we lost Greg. I'm sure he'll be back. We'll just keep rolling. Yeah. The downside to RO water is really the cost of producing it. It's a very expensive process, very energy intensive, very slow, in fact. And I don't know whether it's actually cost effective. We do have treatments for hard water. And, you know, another question in the, in the chat on the side was, you know, how hard does it have to be to be hard? And I guess there's yeah. two different scales. You know, the, the hardness testing equipment that we often get comes from uh, like, you know, the little kits uh, comes from spa shops, right? And you can get your hardness test and other things. Uh, but hard water in the spa world is actually quite soft water in the sprayer world. We don't get alarmed at hardness until we hit about 300, 350 parts per million of calcium carbonate equivalent or total hardness. 350 okay. is the benchmark for glyphosate, for example, that Monsanto back in the day published. And they said, look, if you're doing that, the half liter rate per acre equivalent of, of Roundup original, and you have 350 mils, uh, 350 parts per million of hardness, okay. you should condition your water with ammonium sulfate. And that uh, was the general recommendation. And then they said if you use double the rate, then, of course, the double hardness is tolerable. Well, 300 to 700 parts per million of total hardness is incredibly hard if you own a hot tub. And it's manageable if you're a sprayer operator. So okay. it is possible to just simply treat 
the problem that you have. Unless, of course, it's in the thousands. I've, I saw a right. sample from someone who came into my door actually this winter uh, and he uh, no one's ever found me in my office before. I'm not, I don't have office hours, but he came yeah. in and he said, he brought me a jar of water and he said, can I spray with this? And I said, I said, probably you can, but yes. it might not work. I have no idea from looking at it. Yeah, yeah. And, and then I said, go test it. He went, yeah. Yeah, he went next door to the Saskatchewan Research Council, which has their lab right next door to my office. And they came back, he sent me the results and it was so high in sodium that the total, that the hardness according to the formula that uh, uh, John Alewaya provides was about 10,000. Oh it was the gosh. hardest water I'd ever seen. So yeah. <laughs> I said, don't whatever so you I don't feel, spray So it, I feel like it, perhaps, perhaps that farmer had already anticipated that the water might be a problem. I'm just going to assume at this point that that's if why. He had, if he had taken yeah. a sip of it, he would have spat it out. Yeah, yeah he probably would have known. <laughs> okay, so so Gord asked in the in the comments, of course, you know, how hard is too hard? And the wells test 200 to 300. So that is borderline. Right? That is like okay. It, I mean, it's entry level yeah, it's to okay. possibly yeah. treating. It, there are two different ways of really looking at it. You can use that the sort of the hard cutoff of 300 parts per million. Below that, don't worry about it. But you can also use this incremental formula that that uh, Winfield uses, and it was developed at North Dakota State, which says how many parts per million of each of these cations do you actually have, and then we'll prescribe right. a rate of ammonium sulfate for you. And so then, of course, you know, even small amounts of hardness would trigger some small amount of rate. And the question is, really, is that necessary? Back in the day, when I talked to John Alawaya, and I used to travel with him sometimes on, on speaking engagements, and he would say, Tom, in general. Uh, just add a kilo uh, or a 1%, I should say, a kilo per 100 liters, 1% solution of ammonium sulfate to your spray water. It takes care of most things, uh, but if it's extra hard, then add some more. You know, that was his general general recommendation. I think very practical. So now I hope that Greg will rejoin us because I do really want to talk about um, some of these specific products and what we can do. Um, pH is another one, though. Um, that certainly gets talked about. Now, Peter wants, says there are some herbicides you don't want ammonium sulfate with isn't there. So what's the caveat for ammonium sulfate? Or is that um, an Ontario I, thing? I actually don't know of one, to be quite honest. So Peter, uh, Peter if you have one, do share. Yeah, please, I'd, I'd probably, like to hear that yeah. one. You know, here's, we're going to have an airing of grievances. I know Festivus is long past, but here's one of my things that I didn't really know about until I moved to Ontario. And that's that Ontario and Western Canada actually have completely different herbicide products, or they have the same herbicide product with a different name. And that is my grievance. I do not appreciate that there are so many different ones, and sometimes the same one has a different name. Well, you just have to talk, you just have to call them by their active ingredient name. Right. Like I try that, Tom. Yeah. But some of them are not easy to say. Okay. That's true. So that's that's kind of that's, that's why we have great names. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh Jason suggests dicamba. Um okay, because of drift. Okay, Jason, no jumping the queue. We are gonna talk that, about drift. That is a hundred percent correct. And thank you for reminding me of that. Uh, okay, so because ammonium sulfate is actually okay. an acidifier. It actually ah, liberates okay. the vapor component of dicamba. And yes, ah, it's okay. the dicamba That's still why. works, but it is it adds yeah, to the, to the volatility problem. Okay. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. But I really hope Greg comes back because I want to talk about interlock and the, these sorts of things. Now, um, two people have brought up water temperature. 
So while we're waiting for Greg to reconnect, Tom, does it really matter if you have very cold water or very warm water? Does water temperature actually play a role? In it does matter. Efficacy? Yes, okay. yes, it does matter. It's a great Why? question because we'd, it's funny. We, uh, When I studied at Ohio State, we would take uh, about maybe we had a slew of maybe 10 adjuvants that we often went to. They were just a range of different activators. And we sprayed them and atomized them and tested their droplet size at a variety of water temperatures. And we found that the, the droplet size change that they caused was dependent on water temperature. So that one was an eye opener. And it's possible that you might create or you know, a drift prone situation by using the wrong kind of temperature of water. Um, the other thing that's actually very interesting is there are some formulations that are high in bicar uh, that are sensitive to bicarbonates and hardness. And if those formulations are mixed in cold water, those hardness issues become more severe and they create a bit of a gumming up of the oil uh, surfactant mm -hmm. in that formulation. So um, I think, you know, like in anything, like doing the dishes, uh, warm water dissolves things better, mixes better. It, everything's a little better with warm, with, you know, at least room temperature or ambient water and not the, the five or 10 degree water that we might pump out from a well. That's why, you know, a lot of people that I deal with, they have a, a well and they fill a holding tank in their yard and they just allow yeah. that tank to warm the water up for a, a few days or weeks uh, before they end up using it for spray water. And the question that I always have is what color should my tank be? And it, it you know, it really ought right. to be, first of all, not clear and as dark right. as possible for that reason. Yeah. Okay. So now we're going to get into painted black, but should, should it be black and or yeah. So just as dark as possible. Should I paint it? Should the, I spray paint the it? The idea is, uh, yeah, yeah, paint it black. We should, we can play that song later. And, you know, there was these guys <laughs> no, that in, in Wisconsin, they, they yeah. recorded it for us, actually. They actually did yeah, a, a version of it. Jason wrote that song. And uh, yes. great yeah. job. No, the idea is to keep light out because even water with pesticide residue in it, believe it or not, will grow algae. And if you have a white tank, a clear tank, white, whatever, that allows some water rays to come in, algae will grow in there. It'll mess you up. And that's why. Uh, okay. So I will have you know that after doing one of these episodes with you and Jason and talking about the black tank, we did for our watering system for our sheep out on pasture, we did actually spray one of the tanks black and it worked. So there Excellent. you go. Excellent. Glad, glad to hear um, it. So thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. So Greg is working. He's got a few technical issues happening in the background, but he is going to come back. So um, Jay, if you can, let's go to the clip. And uh, Tom, you're going to recognize this gentleman. Um, and I hope we left in the very beginning uh, with the aviators, but just everybody watch for that. Um, but let's introduce, We I do want to talk about drift. I want to talk about um, what we can do about it beyond what we add in the tank, but of course what we add in the tank. Uh, so Jay, if we can, let's go to this school with Tom Wolf. People see sprayers and they worry about drift and they, they, you know, agriculture is cast in that light. So it's really our responsibility, not just for downwind targets, but also really for the image of agriculture as a whole to minimize drift whenever possible. So it's a really important issue. I mean, it means a, it's a loss of product on the ground, but it's also a pollutant once it's off target. Now, obviously, you have done a lot of work when it comes to drift and written lots of different things. What, what are still some of your main points when it comes to drift? Yeah, drift remains actually quite confusing because there's a lot of sort of counter 
acting forces you know like for example we always think about wind and drift and of course wind wind's really important because the windier it is the more small droplets will leave the spray cloud that the sprayer produces and move off target that's a loss but on the other hand what happens to it once it leaves you know in that in that sense wind can be your friend because wind actually actively creates turbulence in the atmosphere and it dilutes the spray cloud that you've lost so its impact downstream is actually not as bad as you might think it goes up and not so much across now does it depend on product to product how much wind you actually can handle or is there kind of a rule of thumb across the board on wind speeds yeah no it's a good point i think that it does vary from product to product and it's only because of of two things one is different products atomize differently so you might spray a herbicide, fungicide, insecticide that has certain formula, a certain formulation that actually creates finer droplets. And you know, for example, the big example in, in our world is Liberty. Liberty atomizes very finely because it does have a lot of detergents in it. And so it, uh, it makes fine droplets and those are harder to control than some other formulation that doesn't do that, even at the same wind speeds. So that's one thing. The other one is really, uh, you know, what is the active ingredient and what's downwind? because you know, a drop of any given size will drift the same distance regardless of what product's in it. But it, the question is, how much harm can that drop cause? And so now that depends whether you've got a group two and you've got canola downwind, or you've got you know, a group one and, and you've got flax downwind. Uh, different bad things happen, and I think everybody has to assess those separately. Another important point when we're looking at drift is inversion. And I know inversion is one of those things that a lot of people kind of cringe at because it can be confusing, it can be complicated, and sometimes there's not always hard and fast rules. Do you want to elaborate on inversion for us and the impact it has on drift? Yeah, you know, when we say don't spray when it's too windy, the obvious thing is to wait for when there's no wind. And of course, we do that. When, when does that happen? It happens later in the evening, maybe earlier in the morning, maybe overnight. So that becomes then the go-to time period for spraying. And we all know that growing up, we sprayed early in the morning to avoid the wind and we stopped spraying when it got windy. Now, inversions are things that happen when, it is, when it's actually calm. <laughs> and that's too bad because we also have to shut that door. The reason inversions are dangerous is because inversions are characterized by a stable atmosphere. In other words, that turbulence I talked about doesn't happen. So the spray drift that does leave the spray cloud, and there's always some, just by forward travel speed alone, even if there's no wind, there's gonna be a plume that hangs behind. What happens to that plume? In an inversion, that plume stays put, and it moves slowly off target with some small wind or maybe with, with slopes. And when it gets to its destination, it might be a quarter mile or even a half mile or more away, it's still concentrated. It hasn't dispersed and separated. So it can cause a lot of damage there. It just kind of lingers. And so what we see is square miles might be affected by an inversion incident and they might be damaged equally. Whereas if it was windy, you'd probably only see the border area of that section damaged. So, you know, you have to balance those things. So my fingers are crossed. We're hopeful to get Greg back. He was hot spotting from his phone, apparently. Um, so Fargo is great for a lot of things like the movie, uh, but not so great for Wi-Fi, apparently. So we're going to keep trying uh, because I really, Greg's got some really great thoughts on on products specifically and some of the great research they do at Winfield United um, and some of his takes on why we need to uh, treat our spray uh, water and and the solution so but while we're waiting and hope 
um, and hoping that uh, Greg, oh, there, he was there for a moment. Okay, we'll keep trying. I want to talk, let's talk a little bit at least about drift. So I think inversions, of course, are one of those things that, you know, we need to be aware of first and foremost. Um, nozzles come into play, water volume comes into play. But what about products? What else can we do with our spray tank to potentially minimize drift? Yeah, I, you know, Greg and I spoke earlier today about this very thing. And I said, you know, Greg, uh, I come from the old school of, of hardware first, right, where you do the, the adjustment of the machine first, so the boom height, the travel speed, the, the nozzle choice, the spray pressure, all the things that control droplet size and its fate, essentially, from, from, from during spraying. And but there still are some problems that you can't solve. For example, you know, in that clip I mentioned Liberty, it's a classic product that atomizes fairly fine. And a lot of people might have a low drift nozzle on their sprayer and they look over their shoulder and, and they against the evening sun they see that spray plume and they say, I'm not happy with this. What are they what what can they do? And and of course that is exactly the place where adjuvants have a role to play. You can quickly change the behavior of the spray by adding a low drift adjuvant like interlock, for example, in there. Uh, I mentioned interlock not just because Greg's here. It's a big product. Uh, it's a it's a it, it's a product that works well. There are other products like it as well on the market uh, that basically are an oil based adjuvant, and what they can do is eliminate the small droplets without increasing the large droplets so much. And that's what nozzles do poorly. You know, if if you want to reduce small droplets with a nozzle, you're going to add large droplets. That's what they do. They shifted they shift the droplet size spectrum and. And these adjuvants are a little bit more surgical than that. So the downside of the loss of the small jobs isn't as severe in terms of coverage. Mm -hmm. um, so Joey has a question here. With higher chemical costs, are there any concerns that chemicals will be diluted too much? Is that a, I'm not sure if that's, yeah. So do you want to tackle that? Yeah, you know, it's a concern, you know, and let's, let's say that you've got, uh, a thousand acres to spray with a particular product, but you only have product for three quarters of that. What are you going to do? You know, are you going to leave 250 acres unsprayed or are you going to stretch that product? Uh, you know, with the traditional advice has been to not use lower than label rates, primarily to avoid the, in the long term, the emergence of things like polygenic resistance. Sort of, you know, the most hardy weeds survive and then they set seed and they produce progeny that is even hardier. And then we have a, the beginning of a runaway problem. But I think. Uh, one of the things that I think adjuvants can do here is they can give you more bang for the buck. So if you do good agronomy, and that is early seeding, you've got a competitive crop, that kind of a thing, and then early removal when the weeds are small, and perhaps the weather hasn't hardened up yet, it hasn't gotten hot and dry just yet, early removal will possibly allow you to stretch that that herbicide. So I'm not a big fan uh, of of doing that, but I think when your back's against the wall, you you certainly would think about it, and that's, I think, where judicious use of water conditioners and and the surfactants that we talked about is is highly appropriate you know in the adjuvant world there are so many pitfalls unfortunately because every mix is unique every tank mix every other thing interacts and the people who generate who make these formulations cannot anticipate everything so we're now going from you know we're talking about multiple effective modes of action tank mixes so for example if you've got kosher in your land you have to assume it's group two and group nine resistant and the multiple mm -hmm. mode effective mode of action uh, idea says you should now put two additional modes of action in a tank both of which are effective against kosher so you, yeah. you probably will still do a group two and a group nine because they work on a lot of other things are very useful. That means a four product tank mix. Um, so 
what exactly is that going to behave like? Uh, you, yeah. I think you ought to be careful about that. So when along that line, Peter brings up, of course, there are other things we may have in that tank, uh, potentially fertilizers. So uh, does adding other things to the tank, such as fertilizer additives, change the droplet spectrum as well, um, relating that there was some real injury with low rates of fertilizer additives last year? So, that's, so that's what, right. happens, think, what happens there? Yeah, this is a huge matrix of unknowns because there's a lot of specialty fertilizers out there from a lot of small companies. It's legal to sell them and add them to your tank. Uh, the PMRA has certainly given the light on the green light or the CFIA has given the green light on that. There needs to be no reg regulatory process there. But they are typically uh, maybe uh, they don't play well with each other because they're salts usually. And that means they can disassociate and reassociate with something else that may be necessary you know in the tank so the biggest disasters i've seen in terms of tank mix things gone wrong involve specialty fertilizers and so there's there, there you could have a, a clean out issue you could have a persistent problem for hundreds of acres after you've sprayed that tank things just don't come off the walls um that's i would really say the jar test is one thing you can do but i would say for 2022 when you can't go back to the retail to buy some more because it's already expensive and you they probably won't have more i would avoid yeah. some of those things right there you go so that is you know i am hopeful that a the there is some moisture that returns to the west that's one of the things but the other is that i'm hopeful some of the supply chain issues work themselves out by the fall but i think we all have to be very honest that that's probably the most optimistic we can be which means you know, and we've had this conversation with many different farmers, listeners, you know, some people have things in storage already, other people's have, it, other people have it lined up, that, to your point, you know, you may not necessarily be able to just go out and get more of X, either because it's no longer economical or because it's simply not there. So once you got a plan, you sort of have to maybe put some extra planning before you head out into the field, and maybe don't try and put as many things in the tank as possible to save a pass. That's right. Let's let's be let's err on the side of caution for 2022 for sure. And remember, it's always it always boils back down to good agronomy, doesn't it? You know, even in the spray business, I always try to bring things back to agronomy. And agronomy timing is key. So as I already mentioned, early removal and I you know efficiencies are important. Uh, let's do everything we can do agronomically that uh, makes it easier for the pesticide we have to apply to do its job. Let's plant varieties, cultivars, crops that are inherently more uh, resistant, perhaps, to pests and weeds, maybe more competitive, that can be seeded early and take available of early season, uh, early season moisture. Um, you know, because the, the best test, you know, it's maybe a thought experiment, maybe it'll become a reality, for how well your crop does without a herbicide or an insecticide or a fungicide is to not have that available and have no choice but to do that. <laughs> and and so you will probably think... wish. Yes, yeah. it's an expensive uh, experiment, but it's possible that that's what's going to happen. So um, I would just yeah. say let's it's... let's let's use good agronomy. Right. Okay. So quickly, one question. So we did talk about holding tanks. Uh, certainly for water so to warm it up or just so it's more available. Um, what possible problems might there be if I'm going to use, let's say, chlorine to control algae in that tank? So if I if I add chlorine, am I potentially adding an issue when I go to use it as spray water? 
Uh, the results from our informal surveys are that it's not a problem. Uh, a lot of people talk about using chlorine pucks in tanks to keep the water from forming algae. And they say there are no negative consequences for their product performance. I don't know of any scientific studies that have done that. The, the classic caution is always that when we use an ammonia style cleaner, we should not also use a chlorine based cleaner. Right. because it forms a chlorine gas. Now, the pucks are a much lower concentration of chlorine, so they're more of a passive presence, and I don't know whether uh, the the addition of that will, will cause that release of chlorine gas, but I think we would still be wise to err, again, on that one on the side of caution, just to be sure, yep. or at least, uh, you know, not breathe in deeply while, while your head's in the tank. Right. Well, perhaps, you know what? We've all gotten used to masks. Just use one that's appropriate, okay? So cloth one, not appropriate you'd need an actual respirator. All right. Okay. So I'm not a, suggesting you are to the grocery store. That's it. Um, uh, I would like to welcome John to the comments. He's usually the first one and welcomes everyone, but he's late. And so apparently the storm knocked the stuffing out of him because he's been sleeping. So there you go. Oh, Greg's here. Greg, can you hear us? I feel like we're at a seance. Greg, can you hear us? And can you, can we hear you? Because if you can, then I want, I want, to go to you while we have you we're, we're trying i don't know maybe not you know greg if this doesn't work and to everybody else out there i'm going to reconnect with greg we're going to do our own standalone interview on some of the things i wanted to talk to with him tonight and we'll post it on realagriculture.com because we had such a great chat before this even started and i'm really excited to share some of the things he wanted to share but uh if we can't i'll do it on my own and i will share it with everybody um Another question about adding things in. Okay, so let's talk about pH. Can you add vinegar to lower pH in hard water? Uh, the question is, why would you want to lower the pH of hard water? Yeah. That's the question. And yeah, uh, the answer is that there are some acids that when they're added into water, uh, they dissociate, obviously, and they uh, their ions that they leave behind can form conjugate bases with some of the hard water cations okay so that's chemistry I'm just write this down hang on yeah, yeah no, vinegar's, vinegar's not one of those okay okay so got it. um yeah it's not generally i was hoping greg would answer that i was i was hoping to pose that question to him as well because there is a strong market for acids as adjuvants right. in canada and the traditional use is to um if not to soften water which which would be a very special kind of acid uh then to make glyphosate work a little better because uh glyphosate tends to become more oily as the ph goes lower and lower and lower and so okay. that that is one one such market but i'm okay. not a huge fan of modifying the pH of spray water. And the main reason is that the upside for glyphosate is relatively small. Uh, the best thing to add to a glyphosate tank is ammonium sulfate. It makes it work way better. You don't have to lower the acid to caustic levels. Um, the second reason is that there are many herbicides that are often in a tank mix uh, that do not dissolve well in low pH water. And those herbicides may come out of solution and may create tank cleanout issues and, and, and create problems down the road. The classic examples of those are very common tank mix partners. They're, they're group two herbicides, they're the, um, the um, sulfonylureas, uh, the trizolopyrimidines, and a few others. These are basically the products I'm talking about are basically the FMC products, the Bayer products, and the Dow products. Okay, those three manufacturers make 
group twos that dissolve better in high pH. And the remaining one is BASF. It uses, it uses, uh, it, it markets the imidazolinones. The imis dissolve better in low pH water. And so there's that differentiation where I guess you could judiciously use a, a, an acidic modifier if you wanted to, but I'd be very wary of uh, changing the pH. Herbicides want to be in a pH of roughly between seven and six or five and, and not much beyond that. Most herbicides lower their pH naturally. They're mostly weak acids. If you glug some glyphosate into a, into a pH of 7.8, it'll go down to 5.2. You know, that's what glyphosate is an acid. Uh, and so you actually then are potentially harming the solubility of a group two tank mix partner that needs a more basic environment in which to work. So, I kind of personally have always said, let's stay away from pH modification. It can lead to problems. Right. So, and I, so then my brain, of course, goes to also, as, and you mentioned it, clean out issues as well, right? In that realistically, if you're causing anything to sort of, to either salt out or, or join up or gel or any sort of these changes that we don't want, you're then not only impacting that spray pass, but then it's, does it hang around in the tank? Is it hanging around in your in the end caps? Is it like you create another whole level of issues, potentially? It's expensive. It's wasteful. Uh, the biggest curse during the spray season is, of course, timeliness. Uh, what are you doing right now when the weather's beautiful and you should be spraying? Are you scrubbing out your tank because you have a problem? Uh, mm. You know, so those are the kinds of things. How much is that hour worth? Um, if that hour that you didn't spray that quarter section in results in that quarter section getting rained on and not getting sprayed for another five days, that was indeed an expensive hour. Yeah, a very costly one. So Gord's yeah. question about the humic or, or fulvic acids, that that is what you were talking about of, of changing the pH potentially. So making it, um, making glyphosate more uh, effective. Um, I don't know about the specific acids that he's mentioning, to be honest. Uh, so but it's I, the pH I, question. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's I a pH question. The idea here is that, you know, glyphosate has four dissociable groups and uh, they're all uh, ionic and they're, therefore that's, that's why glyphosate is so incredibly water soluble. The lower mm -hmm. your pH okay. is, the fewer of them are ionized, which means they, okay. they, they, they just, uh, you know, hydrogen goes to them and that makes them oily. Okay. okay. The problem is that last yeah. one. Yeah. That one doesn't that one doesn't become ionized or, or that doesn't get a hydrogen until pH about two. Oh. And okay. so even if you lowered the pH to two point five, glyphosate yeah. is still going to be very water soluble. Right. So it's kind of a futile search for you know making a herbicide oily. It gets a little oilier, but still plenty water soluble. Yeah. So one of the things that, uh, and John's got a good question, and we'll maybe get to it in just a minute, but we are running short on time. But one of the things that you did talk about, and that I know Greg wanted to talk about as well, is part of this issue is is the, the lifespan, essentially, of the droplet, right? So in really dry conditions or um, in, in, in these things, what can we do to make sure those droplets get where we want them to go, but then are in are actually in a form that the plant can then take up. And this brings us back to that first video. So are there things we can do to make sure that the integrity of that droplet is maintained and, and gets to that plant? Yeah. And what was, what did Greg say at the beginning of the broadcast before we went on air? He talked something, he said something about he, rocks. Yes. And this is, we're going to do this and he says, plants can't drink rocks. That's right. That's and what he said. That's, that is his, what, he, what he said. 
Yeah, what he meant was that when a herbicide dries onto the leaf, usually the result is a crystal of of undissolved, you know, the water, the carrier, the, the salt solvent is usually gone. And it's not true for all herbicides, but certainly the, the water-soluble ones. Thermodynamically, those crystals can't make through the cuticle. They need a water carrier to make it across. And so how do we preserve the longevity of that deposit? The, the classic things there are, of course, larger drops evaporate slower, have give more time for uptake, that kind of a thing. You know, maybe weather conditions in which the humidity is or the delta T, as we talked about once, uh, is sufficient that it, it doesn't cause a lot of strong evaporation. But this is where I wish we were in America because there are humectants and you can buy humectants in the spray market in the US that will keep that drop wet longer. And yeah. I don't know of any that we can buy here. Uh, so that would be very useful on a hot day, for example. Right. Yeah. So um, I think there are certain disadvantages to living in a tightly regulated environment. Yes. So, and, and that maybe does sort of bring us back to, to that, that leaping off point of, we we certainly have advantages to having you know the expectation that these products work and the research has been done and and those sorts of things and we get our products sort of prepackaged ready to roll but exactly that it when products is, exist in our neighbor's backyard and we can't access them um also when you say humectant all i can think of is like peat moss i don't know why anyway um but that's all i think of is like something and it's a word i hate but something very moist um yeah. So, okay. Question though, and this is exactly what I sort of came to in really dry conditions, plants can't, can't drink rocks. They can't eat rocks. So of course, if it crystallizes, if it re-wets with humidity overnight, do we get more absorption? There's a great study there using a refined extra. Actually, it was published in Weed Science uh, maybe 25 years ago. There's a great paper that I'll never forget because uh, uh, I was asked a question on it during my, during my exams down there on that very paper. Here's what they did is they wanted to know uh, what the effect of humidity is on, on the performance of, of thriven sulfuron was the herbicide. And they sprayed it on a different, different drop sizes. And they found that the very smallest drops didn't work at all. They did not work at all. And they, dry, they evaporated to dryness before they could do anything. But then they did put them into this uh, humidified chamber overnight. And it resolubilized the dried on deposit of those of that one treatment and allowed it to work. So yes, it can happen. Uh, I don't know if it's a good strategy because the issue really is, does it hit the, you know, if it's a small droplet, does it actually hit the leaf or does it go around the leaf as it drift right. off? You know, a lot of the times they evaporate in the air and then they don't adhere to the, to the plant they're intended for. So you have to make sure that small droplet is in fact on the leaf before you, you yeah. know, rehydrate uh, in some way. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Or, or the head, whatever the target, the plant part that you're targeting, but That's either right. way, yeah. yeah, either way, it has to actually be there for humidity to ever work. John has a, a question. I just want to quickly, when, because we were talking about potentially bringing the pH really low in the spray tank, does that have an effect? And this is kind of along the lines of when it's really, really dry, people think they should drive over their fields with a spray tank and, and like irrigate it. But does a really low, so a highly acidic uh, spray, does it have any impact on soil pH? Ah, Ray, Ray, where are you when I need you? Ray's, Ray's listening in. Ray's here. Ray is absolutely answering. here. He's probably like, yeah. I, I gotta, would say go I'm not a soil scientist and I shouldn't answer the question. But go. my understanding is, and I stand yes. corrected if I'm wrong, is that soil is quite highly buffered and can probably tolerate the small amount of material that we put on it that has a different pH. I mean, we are talking about, 
you know, 10 milliliters per square meter. It's not a, you know, that's a 10 gallon per acre application. It's not a lot of material, but uh, hopefully I'm, hopefully I'm right about that. I certainly wouldn't want to har harm the, the soil, uh, you know, bio. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Ray, who's ignoring you, um, anytime you want to, <laughs> maybe we'll have him on next time and I'll ask him. Um, yes. Anyway, Ray says, you got this. You're fine. So <laughs> you're on your own. Mr. Agrometric, now you're a soil scientist. Anyway, Ask me another soil you know question. What? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ask me about phosphorus. So, yeah, exactly. Here. Um, no, but I, I also think that, um, I also think that, I mean, it's great to think about, right? I mean, I think it's an important exercise to think about what are all the things I could potentially impact by doing this, right? So um, I appreciate that kind of question. Um, and so Jason, of course, is, has mentioned um, the discussion on Interlock. And, and as you mentioned, there are other products as well, but, but Interlock is definitely one that seems to be quite popular. Um, lots of questions about it. So, and so what does Interlock do? And I, I mean, this is, this is the part where Lindsay just smiles and goes because mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yeah, I don't really know. That's so. why I was so happy to hear that Winfield United agreed to come on this podcast with I know. Us, uh, today because yeah. they actually have the most impressive testing facility that I have I mean, I'm not just saying this because they're guests here, but I have I have seen. I visited Win, uh, Winfield uh, as a scientist just to see what they have. They have a wind tunnel that is without question the best in the world. Uh, they have uh, the ability to measure uh, active ingredients and how they atomize in the wind. They do that with tank mixes, complex tank mixes, and they are working for farmers, as you said. So they actually have the data on the performance of their products. This is what I like about the company. Uh, and so they, uh, when they say interlock reduces drift, they say that because they've sprayed the pesticides that are normally sprayed in the Great Plains where the product is marketed. And they've documented the fact that the addition of interlock reduces the driftable fines by about 50% without very significantly adding to larger droplets. That's right. its key advantage. That's how it works. It changes the way the product atomizes. Seems to be, as I said, active ingredient formulation specific. All adjuvants depend on that factor to some degree, right? It's a, it's a, mm -hmm. it's a mix. And it also depends on the kind of nozzle you use. So for example, interlock was intended as an adjuvant to reduce the drift of dicamba in the early days. But through a certain nozzle, interlock actually went the opposite way. It actually made the spray finer when atomized through that nozzle. Fortunately, Winfield had the data and that's why that's how I met Greg. He presented the information at a, at a scientific conference that I attended and said, we then actually changed the formulation of that product and made sure that it did not in, increase drift risk mm -hmm. with those nozzles. And that's the kind of questions that I think a customer ought to be able to ask of a company, show me the proof that this works. Mm -hmm. And especially in an unregulated environment, like in, a, in the United States, where you simply don't know because the company may not have data. I would always ask for the data, uh, mm -hmm. prove it to me. Because an experiment on your own farm, Rich alluded to it, having a 28 day waiting period before you know whether it worked or not. Well, that's an expensive proposition. Right. I would much yeah. rather have the, the company assume that risk for me and provide me with credible data that perhaps is peer reviewed. And mm -hmm. I mean, that's the gold standard, but I think we should re request it. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and, you know, we, we talk on this show and, and through real agriculture, I mean, we often talk about trials and on farm trials and, and, you know, 
trying something on a small scale, these sorts of things. But ultimately, you know, as a farmer, you maybe have 40 seasons, 50 seasons. Um, that's just it. Waiting the 28 days and trying it out in one year. That's a long, that's actually a long time or as a percentage is a lot of the, the years you have to try things. So get the site year data done from somebody else. That's right. And, you know, Winfield isn't the only company that does adjuvants in Canada, right? Yep. There's there's Loveland, there's there's others, uh, and they're all reputable companies that are large enough to have large research facilities, and and they do provide the data, they do test. So it is not a marketing free-for-all uh, by any stretch. Uh, but I do think that that is the key question. You know, we often see claims right and we often see testimonials and in all manner of agricultural inputs it's such a common marketing tool and i think we need to just say okay stop it everyone uh an anecdote is not a research trial mm -hmm. um also though you have introduced several things into our vocabulary and another layer of things we have to think about and learn and so we'll keep trying tom and i really do appreciate <laughs> That, you know, you just make my job harder. No, it's easier. I swear. Um, and I'm I'm super sad that we did lose Greg. It, it He was so keen to be on here. It, it Fantastic to uh, to join us and glad he made the time, even though he was on the road. So I, my promise to everyone uh, watching, um, I am going to reconnect with him. And I have a couple of questions I really want to hear his answers on as well. Uh, Tom, thank you for being gracious, uh, gracious and filling in uh, for Greg. And, uh, and of course, thank you to everyone who joined us uh, tonight in the comments. Um, as always, we uh, welcome your feedback. If you've got an idea, an, an idea for an evening or a guest you'd like to see, uh, send me an email, lsmith at realagriculture.com. Um, John says, wouldn't it be awesome if we could speed up all these trials to the speed of poultry genetics? Eight or 10 generations in one year. Imagine. Tom, can you work on that? can you just like no <laughs> no <laughs> that's there are limits to the magic that tom wolf can do yeah. all right okay all right tom thank you so much for joining us tonight um and hey now there were some comments uh do you want to do a shout out are you speaking i i think lara and ray have both said that you've got an upcoming talk uh at the agronomy society of america talk that's coming up so the Agronomy Society of America, that's January 20th, yep. and we'll be talking about, okay. I'll be partnering with Dan Martin, we'll talk about uh, his work with drones and aerial application of pesticides, uh, he's the expert, leading nice. expert in that, and I'll talk about ground application of, of fungicides primarily into, into canopies. And there's another one that's actually quite interesting, this one is sponsored by the Canadian Society of Agronomy, it's on March 25th, and it's a okay. webinar, and it's going to be on adjuvants. Okay, cool. All right. So there you go. Uh, if anybody needs a link, let us know. All right, Tom, thank you so much. It was wonderful to see you. Thanks for joining us tonight. Thank you, Lindsay. Great to talk to you tonight. All right. And thank you to everyone for joining us. As always, remember, you can head on over to realagriculture.com slash agronomist for your CEU credits. Thank you to Adama Canada for being our show sponsor and to Real Ag Radio. Um, wonderful to see you all again. Join us next Monday, 8 p.m. Eastern uh, for our next episode of The Agronomists. Cheers, everybody. Bye.